Today's episode includes a reference to gender-based violence at minute 17. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Bad Soccer Dad podcast, where we're asking, why do our attempts to bring out the best in young athletes often bring out the worst in parents? And what would it take to flip the script? Join us each week as we seek to develop better parents, better athletes, and better conversations. Here's your host, Steve Norman. My conversation this week is with Belinda Bauman. She's the executive director of One Million Thumbprints and author of Brave Souls, Experiencing the Audacious Power of Empathy. Let's jump into the podcast. Tell me a little bit about your sports journey growing up. What sports did you play or participate in? I was in that, uh, I think some people would say that cultish sport called gymnastics. (laughs) It has its own set of rules. It so does, yes. And every parent who's ever paid for a gymnastics lesson immediately feels the dedication that is required by the entire family when you have a gymnast in yeah. your family. Um, when did you start? I started at age three, actually. Uh, I was that rambunctious kid that climbed things and yep. did flips off the couch. Sure. And had a really intuitive mom who said, oh, we could probably put that to work if we <laughs> if we think about it. So um, I was in a small little Midwest town in Wisconsin. There was one gymnastics studio within like a 50-mile radius. And so we drove to get there. It was in kind of like this barn warehouse structure and everything kind of smelled of hay and sweat and chalk and, you know, mats everywhere. Yeah, it was good. And so what role did your parents play other than driving you to practice? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, my, uh, My folks were... Uh, my brother was a football player. Okay. Uh, and my sister, uh, she wasn't. She was much more of a reader than she was a, a sports person. Okay. So my parents went to every football game my brother had. Okay. And I think my dad just kind of transferred the whole football feel into gymnastics. Okay. So he really was the guy in the stands going like yelling. Yeah. And and rooting. Like, and calling out the judges. And I'm like, Dad, they're not refs. They're judges. You don't get to be loud at a gymnastics meet. You'll ruin this for me. Please stop talking. Pretty much. Yeah, so he got a kind of a reputation of being a loud dad. The okay. bad gymnastics dad. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he did, you know, to his credit, he saw... He was uh, he was the first guy in his family um, to really um, kind of make a way for himself off the farm. Yeah. Uh, he grew up on a farm, and he became... He never graduated from high school. Okay. He himself was a football player, a leatherhead. Yeah. Seriously. I have a picture of him. Uh, he was a tackle, and he is eyeing down this guy who is running the ball and the with that little leather helmet <laughs> it's he just passed away um, in February and it is the picture I have in a frame is right it really? now cuz it's it is his self-determination but also that spirit would carry into my life yeah. because even though he was you know 
bad gymnastics dad yelling from the stands, you know, and not really knowing what was going on because there was no points to score and there was no yeah. football to run. He knew that in my own life as a young girl who needed that outlet, uh, that he wanted to show up for that. It's one of my favorite memories of my dad is that steely-eyed look that he ran, you know, ran quarterbacks down with, uh, carried into the stands <laughs> at awesome. gymnastics games. Yeah, it meets. Belinda, where did your faith journey and your love of gymnastics overlap, if at all? Oh, yeah. So I think it's that really interesting moment in most athletes' lives where they are injured. For me, I was a I was a scholarship athlete at Valparaiso University. Um, I was the first one in my family to graduate from high school, let alone go to college. So college was a big deal. College was a big deal, not just for me, but for my tribe. Sure. Right, and um, expectations were high. And my dad reminded me how frequently um, we needed the scholarship that I had. Um, so it wasn't just like athletic pressure from coaches and teammates. It was economic pressure. It was economic pressure. Wow, and okay. I, I don't think we really consider that for some um, of our athletes that come from, um, from economically challenged areas in, in, the, in the world, let alone in America, that that pressure actually exists. Yeah. And that we, we feel practice at a different in different places than maybe some of the other players on the team might my uh, I made it through the train first training season of my freshman year and it was just it was like literally a months before our season started um, I blew out my knee <clears throat> my right knee anterior posterior cruciate meniscus tear it just exploded on a floor um, exercise that I had been practicing. It was that one trick that was kicking my butt and I was going to get it. And I had a coach who was stressed. She herself was economically challenged in her own, in her own program. And so she had her and her assistant coach for the entire team, that was it. So I blew out my knee that day and the, the rest of the sports complex, university sports complex opened up to me. I got to know physical therapists well. I got to know my, you know, my uh, trainers much better than I did. I went through multiple surgeries. Um, and, you know, kudos to the university. They did give me time to try and recover. But by the, by the season of my sophomore year, there was evidence that that was not going to happen. Um, and I, um, I was depressed. And so instead of, you know, the, the scholarship would have extended through my sophomore year, but I just quit school. I literally quit. And as for, a, for an athlete, oh, saying that right now I can I feel the shame of that of what I did I called my mom uh, the day that my coach and I talked about Belinda this isn't going to happen trainers confirmed it 
doctors confirmed it. I just couldn't. My body had developed differently. You know, I had been out of the rigor of 13 years of training for just, what, six, seven, eight months, and that was enough mm. for a young girl of 18 to her body to do strange things. And gymnastics right. is all about where you carry your weight, where right. your center of gravity is and your okay. balance is. And I didn't know my body anymore. I didn't know where I was in space and that that I just couldn't get it back. But I think in the end that there was a bigger plan for me because the day I left, the day my mom picked me up and I left feeling that deep sense of shame for quitting and the economic pressure and the success pressure and the reputational pressure, being the first kid to go to college and all that from the you know hometown. Um, I really sensed my own need instead of my own, I don't know, we as athletes can kind of get that uh, godlike feeling, right? Mm -hmm. I am all good, and as long as I'm winning, I'm okay. Man, I was losing, and my own sense of my need drove me to call out to Jesus. And that's what I did. I took a job in a mall in retail okay. and would stand behind the counter and reflect, right? And I, was, I had to work with people and I had to be present to not only my own reality but other people's realities. Um, and I wasn't the star. And as I called out to Jesus, man, he just met me in that place of my need to remind me that I was much more than a body. I was much more than a set of muscle groups. I was much more than a nutritional uh, rigor, rigorous uh, plan. I was way more than, um, I was way more than just part of a team. I was actually a member of the human race. And as such, my responsibility was to love and care outside of myself. To consider others higher than myself. To feel the pain and the joy of others. Recognizing that everybody's in a great battle, everybody's in a great competition, everybody's in a great war, and all wars are both won and lost at the same time. So somebody else's pain, somebody else's joy is as important as my own. And that was how Jesus ushered me into his family. So I started coaching, and coaching from that center, where my athletes, my girls that I was coaching gymnastics for were um, certainly outside of me but needed um, needed to be part of me as well finding that place where 
I could coach them from what I knew and what I felt, as well as encouraging them to be individual and as much of themselves as they could, was found in this strange place called empathy for me. So, yeah, I was saved by Jesus out of the worst moment, I think, in my life, and he brought beautiful things from it. Well, the when you're an a- when you're a young athlete and so much time and energy and money and sweat has been devoted to that one particular track and understanding of self <laughs> an injury is it's a trauma and it forces you to ask questions about identity and relationship and stability and future security in your book brave souls you talk about identifying with people who are victims or survivors of trauma talk about where your journey has taken you and and what's on your plate these days <laughs> yeah um, so it took me three years to write the book Brave Souls, um, the uh, experiencing the audacious power of empathy. And so you just, your listeners just got a little snapshot of where that empathy started for me. But wow, it took me where I could have never guessed sure. in a million years. Um, I... Out of college, I ended up going to the University of... Uh, Wisconsin-Madison getting a teaching degree and uh, working with middle schoolers and um, I guess I like to say that middle school was my first war zone (laughs) because if there's a group that doesn't understand empathy it's 6th, 7th, and 8th graders (laughs) yes so man my clearest sense of the of what the word tribalism means (laughs) was from a bunch of 6th graders right so I taught I taught 6th and 8th grade for a while, and I wasn't coaching at the time, but what I was doing um, was uh, getting ready to... I was preparing my family and working with my husband in other conflict zones. We were living in and out of conflict zones prior to that, prior to teaching um, with Mercy Ships, Mm -hmm. with World Hope, Um, And we were just getting ready to move into World Relief, where we were working in conflict and post-conflict zones. uh, And I was personally working with women who had experienced gender-based violence. So where I'm creeping up on, this like moment for me where I was like, oh my gosh, my life needs to change right now, uh, happened while um, I was... Uh, working with my husband in World Relief, we had lived in Rwanda with our three and five-year-old just post-genocide. Um, and so my understanding of war was real, of suffering was real, and of the particular flavor of suffering that women experience in war was real. But I made a trip to the Democratic Republic of the Congo with a dear friend, Lynn Hybels, and she and I spent time sitting with women and listening to their stories. Listening more deeply and more focused than I think I ever had in my life. This practice of empathetic listening to other people's suffering um, 
was not finely honed. And God gave me the happy uh, moment of meeting a woman named Esperance, which means hope in French. I say that I learned how to love from a woman named Hope. That's great. She, she had empathy dialed. If there is, if there, she was my coach. She became my coach. She told us as we sat in the epicenter of the Eastern Congo conflict in a church with, uh, with rebels milling around all around us. Her constant reminder of the peril that she lived in every day she told us that she had to flee her village. She had to figure out how to get safely with four children and her husband from one place to another and keep a baby quiet while they were running. She had to figure out how she was gonna feed her family, where water was, keeping track of all the children and her husband, who was equally worried. They landed in a refugee camp just outside of Goma, um, and they had lost a couple children on the way. That grief was settling at the time that they realized, look, we have other children we need to feed, we need to feed ourselves. They went into the Virunga National Forest to seek uh, to, to actually gather firewood. And while they were there, her and her husband, two rebel soldiers, attacked them. And they killed Esperance's husband in front of her. Trauma one. They stripped her and raped her repeatedly. Trauma number two. And then they left her for dead. Trauma number three. And as she laid there, unable to move or process, she herself would say that she would have died had she not been found by a group of sisters who had been trained and sent into that very area of the forest by a local church. These women had experienced what she had just experienced. And they found her, and they fed her, they cleaned her, they stayed with her for the, for the month that rape treatment requires in a clinic. They stayed with her for the nine months that were necessary to bring her son to birth. And they stayed with her for the full 12 months that she did her own trauma training to become one of the women that would go into the forest and seek out those that have been violated and were now survivors. I don't think I breathed the entire time she was talking. And when she finished, I realized I had just witnessed one of the most brave women in my, in my experience on this planet. She, I was writing an article um, with my friend Lynn for a newspaper outlet on Mother's Day in a war zone. So we needed her permission to tell her story. 
and we didn't want to put pressure on her. This was such an important, weighty story. So we left, and she worked with her pastor on whether or not she wanted the world to know her story. And in the end, she got, she's feisty, right? So she had her pastor write across this blank piece of paper, tell the world my story, as if there was any ambiguity in that. And then because she's preliterate, she couldn't write her name. So she took the most valuable thing she had, the thing that was all about her identity, her identity in the middle of this trauma, her thumbprint, and put that right underneath her mandate, what became my mandate to tell the world the stories of women who experience gender-based violence, women and girls who survive war every day. That's what's landed in my inbox. And I did a, I mean, if I was running in one direction, thinking I was going to um, either coach again or keep teaching, my whole life turned on a dime when wow. that. And I knew that I had my mandate, not only from God, but from Esperance. And where has that journey taken you since then? Um, so learning from Esperance has been a journey, as we just said. I. Uh, Getting, I'm the person that doesn't get invited back to dinner parties when people say, hey, what do you do? <laughs> because it requires somewhere in the conversation the words gender-based violence, conflict zones, and um, uh, you know trauma recovery. And at any one of those points, um, people can unplug. Sure. People can quit listening. Yep. Um, so, uh, since then, we, I gathered kind of a group of friends and we said, you know, this is really important. There are millions of women who live in conflict zones across the world whose stories aren't being heard. And like Esperance, we had the hope that as the human race, um, that we can touch our own traumas in our lives kind of in the to reach out to touch other people's traumas and when we understand what other people are going through when we care about what other people are going through we can then en enact to make change and mm. it's out of that informed space that we wanted to call other people and so we kind of said hey if Esperance was strong enough to give her thumbprint and say violence against women across the globe needs to stop. We need to be brave souls in this. Um, we added our thumbprints, like physically added our thumbprints to her thumbprint and said, how do we call other people to give their thumbprint saying, I've heard this story. I believe that it can change. And I want, I bear witness to the suffering of other to, of women in this world. Um, so we decided to do probably the most outrageous thing that we could think of at the time. None of us being current athletes, we decided to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. <laughs> and the book kind of frames out um, this journey for us from thumbprint to summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. There were 14 women. Uh, ages 22 to 65. 
uh, we had great help from from our families and our friends, and our goal was not to was to do what Esperance said. She never asked for pity. She didn't ask for stuff. What she asked for was the dignity of being listened to, of being heard. And so we honored her and all of her sisters and all of those sisters in places like Syria, like South Sudan, um, other places in the world where women live in war every day and are the strategic factor from rebel groups or militias or armies in breaking down the will of the people for peace. Harming them means they get control. So we listened to their stories and then we attempted a five-day summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. And it required us to bring all of our inner athletes, all of our discipline on all of our levels to get there. What did God teach you about yourself on that climb? <laughs> that I am a crummy listener, um, but I have the capacity to listen. And I think that knowing myself and my weaknesses led to this point where I could go, we can do this. My friends, we can do this. Embracing our weakness leads to greatness so often, right? So in the end, that I'm a crummy listener and I needed to listen better. Okay. Kilimanjaro required that of me. Congo required that of me. That I am, um, it is n important for me to know that other people out have a perspective other than my own. And leaning into that perspective, um, like actually physically like trying to shape shift with my teammates as we were um, climbing Kilimanjaro going, why is she still whining about that? Or, yeah, I'm hungry too. And pressing into us as a team, taking learning to take somebody else's perspective without giving up my own was a huge lesson. And finally, the whole reason we were doing this was because we live in a really complex uh, time in the world. And peace, peacemaking, and conflict transformation are, I think, our number one need. I know of no other uh, quicker route to making peace than empathy. So what did I learn about myself? I learned that I am not an empathetic person by nature. But that's why um, God has hardwired it into me. Science is there proving that and that I also have the ability to grow in it. Kilimanjaro and the team required all of that. Belinda, what's one step that families with young athletes could take towards empathy? Because I think a lot of times, especially when, we, when our kids are younger, elementary age or middle school age, there's this question of 
how much you tell them about what's going on in the world. So, yeah. like, my daughter got a chance to go to Detroit for the Holocaust Museum, but they didn't get the full version. They only got the PG version. There were, like, rooms and exhibits that they didn't get to see because people didn't trust their developmental capacity to appreciate it. That's a different debate for a different day. But in your mind, how, how do families who are just kind of doing the minivan and the homework and the drive-through life zoom out and say, wow, there are things that are big that are happening in the world. How do we engage them without feeling... Or how do you engage them while feeling legitimately overwhelmed by them? Yeah, I... Okay, so number one thing is soccer is played everywhere. You would be hard-pressed to find somewhere where football is not um, essential in the lives of kids, right? Yeah. Um, Sports are everywhere, right? The... That gives me great hope for us um, in the world. Because at its essence, two teams on the battlefield or competing athletes um, are a mirror of the everyday conflicts we have to tackle. Do kids play sports in war zones? Oh, gosh, yes. Probably, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So in Congo, the favorite uh, soccer ball was, you know, banana leaves wrapped around plastic bag trash right for real that's not just a trope that's like that's really what they did and the better soccer balls had been around for a couple years and had a number of layers of banana leaves around them so they were like actually valuable balls that kind of the way we value our game winning ball you know they were real coaches just kind of pop up like the guy that can motivate the team to actually play impromptu games teams are formed and uh conflict is resolved out on these little uh you know fields that are have that are designated as cow pastures during the day and as soon as the sun sets they are you know the local soccer field so yeah everywhere and do people like that you've met, like these sisters that you've met around the world, do their kids play sports? Do they show up and watch, or is it kind of very town by town, village by village? <laughs> no, I think everybody shows up to watch at some okay. point. Okay. Oh yeah. So, so sport and play can be like a galvanizing moment for Absolutely. healing, or is that overstated? Oh no, I actually think that one of where sports engages these concepts of empathy of empathetic listening of perspective taking of peacemaking I actually think um, sports becomes the most accessible on-ramp to conflict transformation that we have really Uh, especially with kids that are learning there are a number of ministries uh, that are being developed right now that are um, effectively working if they're brave enough in places that erupt with actual bullets on a regular basis places like um, Sierra Leone like uh, Central African Republic you know even I met some fantastic basketball players in Syria just recently that were on the national team that were still practicing that were still hoping that were still wishing that their voices as Syrians could be heard through their excellence on the court. It's real. I, I think 
I wish the Olympics would return to the moment where peace and war, where war was set aside hmm. so that sport could be undertaken and peace was the outcome frequently between warring countries when the Olympics were engaged. We don't do that anymore. Hmm. Belinda, how, how, could, how could families who are middle-class Midwestern America think about sport as more than sport? Or how could they leverage kids' sports experiences or journeys for, the, for, for empathy, for the good of the world, for advocacy, as opposed to just yeah. a chance to burn off excess energy and kind of advance their own hobby? Absolutely. Well, I think, I mean, I'd be remiss to say it doesn't start with us parents in the uh, bleachers first, right? So <laughs> I think, yeah, no, I think empathy, especially empathetic listening, is a key that parents can do. Empathetic listening is when we turn the noise down in our own head sufficiently enough to be able to hear and feel what the person in front of us is saying, whether that's our kid. Now, that could be our kid reviewing how their game went um, or whether it's the coach, their coach, because sometimes we're just ticked at their coaches, right? Or that, or we're, we don't understand that last play or where was my kid? They were on the bench the whole time. Turning the own, our own noise down in our head so that we can hear, kind of read the air Mm -hmm. around the person that's talking to us or around the person that we have genuine questions for. Once we've, um, once we've kind of engaged this, hey, you have something to say that I need to hear, like really hear, not just in my ears, but like hear with my heart. I think we... I think we tend to not fear the situations we're in or that our kids are in. I mean, we fear all kinds of stuff when we're sitting on the bench, right? When we're watching the game. We fear that our kid isn't getting played. We're, we're, we fear that they may get hurt. We fear that there's some kind of breach of, of trust going on or that our kid might get a message that they're not super duper, hmm. right? Mm-hmm. When we can turn that fear noise down in our own head, I think we start to see the perspective of the whole experience much more clear. And peace tends to settle instead of fear. Um, I think once we've kind of, I don't know, I'm a huge advocate for us being um, good, good folks in the stands, good folks on the field, um, good coaches, good refs, uh, that are willing to listen and see other people and hear other people taking the time to do that. Once we've done that, I think then we can say, yeah, you know what? What does this mean for, for this outside of our community? What does this mean? What is this uh, engaging of listening, of seeing how other people see it, and of making peace with within conflict even, within battle, you know, the mm -hmm. battle of the field, what mm -hmm. does that mean in really rough places? Now, we can find rough places everywhere, 
It sure. doesn't have to be a war zone. Whether that is amongst a refugee community, whether that's amongst an economically challenged community, whether that is um, actually, you know, flying over a sea and going somewhere with your kid for a sports ministry to, you know, play soccer. You, you probably won't necessarily teach soccer to a kid in Sierra Leone. You'd get schooled in some soccer. <laughs> Seriously, they may not have the shoes, but I've never... But they've got the skills. Oh, they got the skills, yes. So if we go being willing to, like I did with Esperance, make them our coaches in empathetic ways, in making, uh, in actually living out and not just using as rhetoric our phrases like be the best you can be and give it your all. Um, I think that for us as parents, there's a really valuable risk to take in opening up the world of sports beyond Europe, beyond um, America, beyond Brazil, or you know wherever your kid, wherever your kid's heroes come from. Find that, find that hero from the sport in that other place. Because all sports are really played everywhere. You just got to look for it. That's great. Belinda, if you could get Esperance <laughs> in a room with survivors from the Michigan State Gymnastics Program, what could they learn from her? What gift would she give? Whew. Man, that question just caught me, hey? You know, watching the Larry Nasser trials for me as a gymnast, as a young gymnast, uh, as someone who came, who grew up as a young gymnast, was um, an out-of-body experience. I think for a lot of us that grew up in that '80s, '90s era of gymnastics where body image and was everything. The, the gift of hearing women tell their stories and being able to say, I thought I was the only one, mm. but I wasn't. I wasn't crazy. I wasn't... This this was happening is invaluable to a trauma survivor. I think Esperance, if I know my sister at all, she would have watched the grace and composure that many of the athletes expressed while they were giving testimony. Mm -hmm as well as their deep desire for reform, mm. for change of heart, for a willingness to offer the hope that there could be reform, not only in programs, but in actual people. Mm. 
I think Esperance would say yay and amen. That was her defining healing, was when she chose to not just be a survivor, but to become a change agent in the conflict. She was my brave soul, and I think that each of the women that gave testimony and those that didn't give testimony but could were brave souls as well. Belinda, what does playing the role of a change agent look like for athletes, families, coaches, athletic directors look like going forward? Because I I think that there's a sense out there that says, well, you know, Michigan State, Penn State, Baylor were anomalies. You had a couple sociopathic bad apples that that got loose. Um, and if we can just kind of cut out these these skin cancers, then the whole then then the system is still whole. We're still intact. And I hear you saying there's another layer that we need to dig if we're going to change culture. Absolutely. I mean, well, let's just take your metaphor. I mean, you just listed three huge schools in one breath. And the metaphor of a skin cancer, you know, yeah, you can cut the skin cancer out, but people are going to still get skin cancer because we haven't changed the protection that we use to make sure that skin cancer doesn't happen. Okay. So I do think, I mean, you hear, I mean, even if you aren't a gymnast, you hear at the, um, I'll be, I'll be opinionate, at the half-baked reaches for actual reform for you know hey just use 50 just use 50 block uh sunscreen to try and stop the skin cancer and we should all be okay when really what we need is some actual education on what skin cancer is on not only how to prevent it but the actual damage Because sometimes understanding the actual damage that was done and could happen again is hits us in our human way more than um, than the quick reach for a solution. This is our moment as as people, uh, as athletes, as coaches, as parents, as people who love sport. To open up to the idea that maybe um, maybe systematic change for how we report abuses, for how we see those who report abuse, for those who know abuse is going on, and need to say something, maybe this is that moment where we don't just slather sunscreen on it, but we actually educate ourselves and create a preventative method for our athletes, not just our gymnasts, not just our, um, you know, the sports that are classically affiliated or associated with uh, body image mm-hmm. or for all of our athletes for all of our kids who submit to coaches for all of our physical therapy trainers and 
and doctors that really do care if we can come together and make a depth of reform in a reporting structure and in an education process for what trauma and abuse looks like in athletes, I think we have made peace. And we could probably take some great cues from our brothers and sisters who live in conflict and how they deal with this. So let's dream a successful Brave Souls revolution. Ooh. What what does youth <laughs> sports culture look like in 10 years if families, youth pastors, church leaders, coaches are leaning forward into the empathetic listening way now? Wow. Wow. Um, I think one of the things we'll see sooner than later, like that, you know, investment reward thing. Yeah. I think we'll see kids wanting to become coaches, really good coaches, sooner than later. Okay. I, every, every sport, whether it's travel or why or, you know, out on, you know, the dusty fields of Sierra Leone, um, need coaches right okay. now. Need good coaches. And I think our, when you grow up in a safe atmosphere where you grew where you were better than you were before you engaged that game or that sport, that makes you want to do that for others. That's the nature of empathy, I think. Empathy begets empathy. Peace begets peace. Dreaming for our future athletes, a safe place to be who you are, and do what you do with no judgment, incredible encouragement, and boundaries that everybody understands. I think that that would not only make a great sports program, I think it would make a great world. Thank you. Belinda, where can people find the book and learn more about your work? <laughs> so you can find it um, pretty much everywhere, actually, which is really exciting. Um, again, it's Brave Souls Experiencing the Audacious Power of Empathy. It's in. It's on Amazon. It's at Barnes & Nobles. It's at Target. It's everywhere. But if you get a chance, um, go to your local bookseller and... Uh, Ask them if they have it, and if they don't, they can always order it. I'm really grateful for the folk that are reading the book and re responding now. So thank you, Steve, for opening up this moment for us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Belinda says, empathetic listening is when we turn the noise down in our own head enough to hear and feel what the person in front of us is saying. Turning our own noise down in our head lets us read the air around the person that's talking to us. Who are you struggling to show empathy to these days? Is it your child? A coach? A teammate or teammate's family? Have you been quick to write someone off because you haven't stopped to learn their whole story? What might you change to see them for who they truly are, not as the person you've decided that they are? If you liked what you heard today, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you have a minute, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. 
Reviews help other people find the show. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at badsoccerdad.org. Thanks again to Belinda for joining me today. Thanks also to our producer, Jessica Behrens, and our audio engineer, Dwight Beal. And thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next week.